Kind of cool. This is a third in a five-part series on, uh, titled Sola Jesus, one of the uh, six theological dis distinctives of the Blue Ocean Faith Church Network. And we're offering an alternative to one of the slogans of the Protestant Reformation, um, the, at least the Luther-Calvin wing of the Protestant Reformation, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, Grand Rapids, that's all Luther-Calvin wing of the Protestant Reformation. Um, but a, a few preliminary comments here before I get to my Sola Jesus text today. Um, Sola Jesus, like Sola Scriptura, is a slogan. So it's not a theory of everything. It's a slogan, and it, it's only helpful if it simplifies complexity at a popular level, as slogans do. So that's the advantage, and it's also the disadvantage of slogans, right? Uh, Sola Jesus is a lousy slogan to address, like, the nature of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for example. So it's, it's got limited use. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, because um, I think this could be pretty easily misunderstood, um, in deconstructing sola scriptura, sola Jesus is not an attempt to diminish our view of scripture. Um, actually, it's meant to enhance our engagement with scripture. And, you know, I've been reading scripture virtually almost daily for 46 years. It's a spooky, powerful book, uniquely charged up with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a God-breathed book unlike any other I've ever read, and I've read some wonderful books in my lifetime, um, I get excited and enthused reading uh, scripture. Of course, times when my mind is completely dulled as well, like everybody, but my understanding of Jesus is inextricably bound up with scripture. Um, you may notice that we're appealing to scripture to show the limits of sola scriptura and to elaborate sola Jesus. So if the effect of this series is to get this church reading scripture less or loving it less or wrestling with it less or hearing God through it less, it will be the most miserable failure of a series in my lifetime. And at least me and Emily will share the blame together. And I'm, I'm sure I've had some duties, doozies over 40 years, so that's saying a lot. Um, but let's again consider a couple of the limits of sola scriptura. Some of the difficulties with Sola Scriptura. It, uh, Sola Scriptura came with two writers, two corollaries that shaped its meaning, and both are actually, I think, contrary to Scripture, which is ironic. The first writer is called Sufficiency. It's the idea that Scripture provides us with all the truth we need to know, which is not supported by Scripture itself, because, like, creation reveals things about God that Scripture can't. And, you know, if we open our eyes and look at the natural order, we learn things that are important. Science emerges from this revelation of God in nature. Um, wisdom, as C.S. Lewis said, like pops up in all cultures. Uh, it comes from many different sources. The Jewish prophet Daniel, um, who was like the sage prophet of the Old Testament, was trained in all the branches of the wisdom of the Babylonians, and that was a good thing. The second Sola Scriptura writer is that the truth of the Bible is clear. Um, the technical term for this is perspicuity not perspiration, perspicuity. Uh, I think it's kind of ironic 
that you'd have such a befuddling word that means clarity. (laughs) But again, the perspicuity of Scripture isn't actually asserted in the Bible. Um, The truth of of Scripture is not always clear. Like the divinity of Christ is like the linchpin of, of Christian orthodoxy. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ wasn't settled until the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, 325. Uh, Before that, there were competing views that both laid claim to Scripture, and it couldn't be resolved by appeal to Scripture. It was unresolved in the church. The question of the divinity of Christ was unresolved for 200 years. There wasn't like an orthodox view on that question. It was only resolved at the Council of Nicaea, which was driven by the Eastern fathers of the church, the Eastern men who were leading the church at the time called fathers. And those guys appealed to experience, their experience of Jesus in the liturgy and in prayer to buttress the divinity of Jesus because appeal to scripture wasn't doing it. But here's an even deeper problem with Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura was forged, you know, 500 years ago in an authoritarian age. It was just after the the Dark Ages, and, and there was a sense in society that if you didn't have a very strong authority, if there wasn't someone who was vested with absolute authority, the only alternative was utter chaos, such as was experienced in the barbarian age, the Dark Ages. And the church during this time claimed to be that absolute authority. Sola Scriptura invested authority instead in the Bible, but both approaches imported the same assumption that certainty was possible for human beings. And it was actually necessary uh, to keep us all from devolving into chaos. But if you read the Bible, the Bible regards God as a mystery, right? I mean, his name, I think it's in in the text here, close to it, was... I am who am. That's a heck of a mysterious name. It's not saying much about yourself. I am who am. Get over it kind of a name. Uh, Mysteries defy human attempts at certainty. All human beings are a mystery, right? If you think you know someone and you've just got them locked, that's when you stop knowing them. That's when you stop relating to them. That's when you stop like growing in your relationship with them. Now, some things about God can be known, but never everything. Our our knowledge is always in part. We see through a glass darkly, as Paul himself said. The primary concern of the Bible is not certainty at all, but love. Love operating through trust or faith is what we need to make our way through an uncertain world that we can only know at best partially. So as as a result of these limitations, they all kind of packaged together in the Sola Scriptura slogan, the, the result of these limitations has been to use Sola Scriptura to invoke Um, support for readings of Scripture at times that violate love, that grieve the Holy Spirit, and that have been harmful to people. I mean, think about it. If the truth of Scripture, according to Sola Scriptura, um, must be clear, 
then it's a short step from there to assume that any widely accepted reading of Scripture, at least widely read by the people in power in the church, is therefore also certain, can't be challenged. If, if we have an assumption of clarity and certainty about Scripture, at least in important matters, we will inevitably use any like widely accepted reading of Scripture as a club, one that serves those who have the power in the church, usually white men, <laughs> all in the name of truth. And this has led to the abuse of Scripture and harmful approaches to slaves, to women, to sexual minorities, to outsiders, to the Jews themselves, and many other groups of people. This is no small problem. This is no small limitation. This is a really big limitation of sola scriptura. Now let's turn to Scripture for a, a sola Jesus approach. Uh, reading the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke's gospel. I got my like Jesus freak Bible. It's the first Bible I ever, ever bought when I was a 19-year-old Jesus freak. Um, the first sermon I ever read was on this text, the transfiguration. The guy who preached the sermon, Dick Bieber, visited my father who was in, an, in a coma for having taken a drug overdose. And uh, I was down in the, in the uh, chapel praying with my friend Mark Kinzer. And Dick Bieber said to my father, wake up, up Glenn, you're loved. Uh, Jesus loves you. And the you know, head nurse as Dick left the ICU said, he, he's in a deep coma. He can't hear you. And at that moment, my dad said, thanks for coming, Dick. And woke up and was fine. And the doctors were overheard saying by my sisters, this is the closest thing to witchcraft we have ever seen. So, like, I like the transfiguration for a lot of reasons. And it's like maybe God is trying to get my attention in these various means. So let me just, um, this is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And the immediate context is the same in all three, which is interesting. It's not always the same with uh, various parts of scripture that are repeated. But let me just read the immediate context to give you the sense, and then we'll get to the main event here. So this is Luke chapter 9, 23 to uh, 27. But that's 1 Corinthians, so that's, I mean, 1 Corinthians, sorry. Um, <laughs> Luke 9, 23 to 27. And to all, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to be a follower of mine, he must leave self behind. Day after day, take up their cross and come with me. Whoever cares for their own safety is lost, but if a man will let himself be lost for my sake, that person is safe. What will a person gain by winning the whole world at the cost of his true self? For whoever is ashamed of me and mine in this world, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And I tell you this, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death before they have seen the kingdom of God. So things are really getting serious at this point in the gospel. Jesus is revealing aspects of his messianic call that are really unappealing to his disciples, like that he has to suffer, and anyone who follows him has to suffer. And this 
understanding of what it means to be Messiah is running counter to the understanding that was the conventional wisdom um, of the Bible experts of the day. And Jesus is coming under a lot of attack for that. And the Bible experts are quoting chapter and verse to refute his messianic vision. And this text ends with this intriguing promise. Some of you who are here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Sometimes it says, see the kingdom of God come with power. What could that mean? Well, see what happened next. Verse 28 through 36. About eight days after this conversation, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up into the hills to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there were two men talking with him. There were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, the destiny he was to fulfill in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter and his companions had been in a deep sleep, but when they awoke, they saw his glory in the two men who stood beside him. And they were, as they were moving away from Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, how good it is that we're here. Shall we make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? But he spoke without knowing what he was saying, which never stopped many preachers. Um, the words were still on his lips when there were, uh, came a cloud in, which cast a shadow over them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and from it came a voice, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was seen to be alone. The disciples kept silence and at that time told nobody anything of what they had seen. So any Jew hearing this would be reminded of the time that Moses in Exodus chapter 24 went up on Mount Sinai with his disciple uh, Joshua and was enveloped in a cloud of glory and they were bathed in God's glory and Moses received the law of Moses, the heart of the Hebrew Bible. In Luke it says Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his departure. That's the Greek word that's uh, used for exodus, which is the name of the book that tells this story. From Peter's point of view, having Moses and Elijah appear is huge, especially at this time in the whole campaign, because Jesus has been getting pushback from the Bible experts quoting the law and the prophets. And here we have Moses and Elijah themselves chatting amiably with Jesus. What, what is the significance of Moses and Elijah? Well, big time, they represent um, the term for the Bible at the time, which was the Bible is called the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. This is the Bible. The law was the law of Moses and the top gun prophet at that period was the prophet Elijah. So this is like the authors of the Bible. This is better than the Bible. What an endorsement for Jesus. So of course Peter's saying, let's put three shelters up when Moses and Elijah seemed like they were wandering off. What a timely endorsement. Now we can get the Bible experts off our back. 
Like, imagine Bernie Sanders on a mountain, glorified, just before the South Carolina primary. Lots of African-American voters are not excited about Bernie. And Spike Lee appears in glory, chatting with Bernie. Bernie's advisors would be like, Peter, hold it right there. Let's get a photo. Let's at least get a blurb, or better yet, shoot an endorsement video. Hold the phone. Capture this moment. But God has a better endorsement plan for Jesus. And it happens in a cloud. A cloud comes over them. Uh, it's not just any cloud. It's a, like a technical term. This is like a theophany. This is a God appearance. God is in this cloud. God comes in clouds a lot in the Bible. He appears in clouds. Jesus left in a cloud. Um, it's hard to see in a thick cloud. Uh, we have two uh, climate scientists in the church, Derek Passelt, one of them, uh, studies clouds. It's hard to pin clouds down to study them. Remember, remember the movie, uh, tor uh, the tornado movie by, uh, with Helen Hunt in it? And they're chasing the tornadoes and they're trying to get these little sensors to like get under a tornado. How the heck do you do that? And they, you know, in order to, you have to be inside the cloud to understand the cloud. The only way to see anything in a cloud is to be right up close to it. So knowledge by intimacy in the context of uncertainty is the kind of knowing that happens in a cloud. It's a great classic of prayer, contemplative prayer written in the 14th century. It's an old book. It's an anonymous writer, English author, and it offers a method of prayer that leads to deep intimacy. C.S. Lewis said, I tried this way of praying, and I, oh man, it's way too deep for me, but I, I wish I could do it. Guess what the title of the book is? Cloud of Unknowing. It's not cloud of certainty. It's not cloud of perspicuity. <laughs> it's cloud of unknowing. The only way to have this kind of knowing is to be in the cloud when God fills the cloud. You know, maybe you've noticed this yourself. The times when I've heard God's voice most clearly and felt intimacy with God most deeply have been times when I found myself in my life in a cloud of unknowing, a cloud of uncertainty when I was in the dark, when I was confused, when I couldn't find my way to save my life or even find my glasses. With Jesus saying, the Son of Man must suffer and die, and anyone who follows me must join with me in that. They must, the disciples were entering their own cloud of uncertainty, of unknowing. Now they're on the mountain and a literal cloud comes over them and God enters that cloud of uncertainty with them. And they hear a voice. The text says, voice. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Remember, this is in the context of their being excited about Moses and Elijah, authors of the Bible. But this is not the punchline. This is not the punchline. This is my son, my chosen, listen to me. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke both began with the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus hears similar words, you are my son in whom my soul delights. Now, the disciples are hearing essentially the same word. So it's dramatic, but it's not news. For that, we wait for the very next verse. The real punchline comes now. When it was over, there was Jesus only. Solo Jesus right there. And then to emphasize that, they kept this to themselves during those days. What? I mean, you've got the critical endorsement of Moses and Elijah, whom you have seen the law and the prophets personified, and you keep it under wraps when you need it most? Why? Well, because the fundamental message was sola Jesus. There was Jesus only. They couldn't tell this story without telling that. And that was so explosive in a religious setting, which was quickly becoming text-driven, especially among the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the experts in the law. See, the Jesus movement would be a radically centered movement. And it would not be centered on something as important, as sacred, as inspired even, as the law and the prophets, as the Bible. It would be centered on Jesus. If, if we think for a moment that this meant they went out and stopped caring what Scripture said, we'd be entirely missing the point. I mean, think about it. This episode, in their experience... It doesn't diminish Moses and Elijah, and by extension, the law and the prophets, the Bible. If anything, it elevates them. I mean, it elevates them, interestingly, by subordinating them to Jesus. You know, in the presence of Jesus, Moses and Elijah appeared to these guys like lit up. I mean, they, had their, they were plugged into a 220 line, and they weren't frying. They were just filling with glory and pleasure and joy. I mean, they lit up. They experienced Moses and Elijah as more real, not less, right? More God-charged, not less. When subsequently they read Moses and the prophet Scripture, they would have listened more, not less. But here's the difference. They listened in a new way. They listened for the voice of Jesus. I mean, how could these guys have read Scripture again without remembering this whole episode, which must have been just like seared into their consciousness? How could they not remember Jesus with Moses and Elijah and the cloud, and the voice from the cloud, this is my son, listen to him. And then it went, when it was all over, there was Jesus only. They read G, uh, scripture from a sola Jesus point of view from now on, and it must have enhanced their reading of scripture. Because they didn't just look for the words in scripture, they listened for the voice of Jesus in their reading of Scripture and in all of their lives and interactions. That this is the challenge of Sola Jesus. 
Sola Jesus challenges rationalistic modern people like us who are insecure about spiritual experience. It challenges us. It says we need to root, center our faith in Sola Jesus. We are given the spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Paul called it the spirit of sonship. Through the spirit, we get a feel for the voice of Jesus. We do. Through the Spirit, we get a feel for the voice of Jesus. Not just the words, but the voice infusing the words, which has a huge impact, doesn't it, on the meaning and the power of words. I mean, we all know in this age especially that when you separate words from a voice, Speaking the words, the communication falters, doesn't it? I mean, words are subject to gross misinterpretations when you strip them of voice. This is why email is so problematic, so inadequate for dealing with conflicts and anything that matters, really, in email. It's hard to deal with. This is why we get so messed up communicating important things, which are always laden with emotion in like a text, you know. And isn't it interesting, if we misinterpret emails or text messages, almost always we infer anger or something negative in the text or the email that wasn't actually there. Something about the neurology of encountering words without voice, that tends to be the mistake we make. We get the meaning of the words wrong because we haven't been listening for his voice or, or maybe trusting his voice. Instead of just like dismissing the voice and just holding on to like the interpretation of the words that is common around us say. When, when there's a disparity between what we're told words mean and what we know of the voice of Jesus... You know, what do we say when, when we have that despair? Have you ever had that? You're reading the Bible along, and you read something, and you say, whoa, who put this in the Bible? Say, this just doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. It doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. That's because you have the Holy Spirit. And, and, and you do know something of the voice of Jesus to make those discernments. When you have that experience, you need to pay attention to it. Don't dismiss it. So, Sola Jesus is not about denigrating Scripture. If your takeaway is put your Bibles on a shelf with that 20-year-old Italian Renaissance textbook from your junior year in college to be thrown out, if you're lucky, 50 years from now by your adult children after your passing, saying to themselves, why did mom or dad keep all these books they never read for us to have to pitch? Then, well, I've been a miserable failure if you've done that. Sola Jesus is about elevating Jesus, which, among other things, helps us engage Scripture more profitably. The biblical term for what the Bible is as a spiritual book is what? The biblical term is not authority. The biblical term is inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for training, for you know, walking in righteousness, whatever, 2 Timothy. Inspired is the word. That word means God breathed. Words on a page require ink. 
A voice requires breath. So the fact that the Bible is called inspired means it's meant to be read listening for a voice which requires breath. Next week, I think we're going to explore how to listen for the voice of Jesus more. Um, But we're done for now. Amen. Okay. Um, Let's just take a minute or two. And what I'd like to suggest is that during this time of quiet reflection... Um, maybe just ask the Spirit to remind you of a time when you either sensed the presence of Jesus or you think maybe you heard the voice of Jesus. I mean, heard, you know, heard. Not like audibly maybe, but like inside your head. Like, like Roy was talking about, he had that nudge, he had that urge that he was supposed to be doing some particular thing with his life and he kind of trusted it. If you've ever had any kind of experience like that, um, or it might not be something you could even reduce to words. That's the beautiful thing about voices, you know, right? Babies learn their mother's voice. The words don't really matter. Maybe it's just like sometime when you felt the presence of something that you kind of trust. You know, I think that, I think I was feeling what God at that moment. Just take a moment now and just remember that. Remember what was going on. Remember the scene. Just savor it. And then we'll have communion. So, God, I pray that um, if ever anyone has sensed your voice or sensed your presence, that you would now just increase their confidence in their capacity to identify your presence and to hear your voice. And I pray for all of us that you would open our ears, that we might hear more the voice of Jesus and sense more the presence of Jesus in the din of all the data that comes into our brain. Just give us a little extra ability to discern the voice and the presence of Jesus. This we ask in his powerful name. Amen.